so Jill and I have a pan in our kitchen that we cook with called a nonstick pan. It's such a hoax. You ever have, you have the same experience? Like 10% of everything we cook in our nonstick pan, it's like cement in the bottom of that thing, right? This is, seems just like a common experience that maybe most of us share. And you know you got to clean it when you're done. And so you might as well just skip the soap and brush. It's not going to work, right? You know this. So what do you do? You grab whatever's close, like a butter knife or a, like some abrasive or something because you're like, I got to get some elbow grease into this thing, right? And so you're just giving it all you've got, and then you're probably doing more damage than you really should be doing, which is going to make it more nonstick than it actually is already, or more less nonstick, I should say, uh, than it is already. And so what do you do, right? Uh, well, I usually get to the point where, like any good husband, uh, just leave it in the sink uh, for someone else to deal with. I mean, to let it soak, right? Let it soak in the sink. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Uh, Eventually, you say something like, ah, let's just get a new pan, you know, this is worthless, and somehow, two or three days later, we're cooking in the same pan again, and it's just this vicious cycle over and over and over. Well, people are just like our pan. People are designed by God, originally, un, originally clean, like with complete purity and perfection, but then made unclean, not by faulty design, but by faulty choices called sin, which cook the grime of spiritual guilt onto us so that we cannot remove it. There is no way that we can, we may get in there and scrub as much as we can. We may get in there and try to price some things off. We may try to get better or do things differently, etc. But even if we get to the point that we look somewhat clean on the outside, we know the damage that's already been done, right? So we are just like that pan. And I want to know uh, today, just let you know, by the way, that when we talk about things like spiritual guilt, and especially with maybe some of you who are here for the first time, I just want to confess, I recognize that the church has not been that good at helping people understand this whole idea of guilt. In fact, if we've been good at anything, it's been at making people feel guilty, right? Making people feel guilty, especially people outside the church, while people inside the church are kind of wagging their fingers like, well, don't do this, or you shouldn't have done that. You know, That's what the church has been good at. But I'm not talking about that kind of guilt. I'm talking about a universal Guilt, like a guilt that all of us have to deal with. Uh, I'm talking about a guilt that, if I can just borrow a line from the band Boston, is more than a feeling, right? It's more than a feeling. The, here's what the Bible says about, you know, those self-righteous church people, which hopefully we are not that people, right? In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, it says, What then? Are we better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Gentiles, which you can read both like the religious people and the non-religious people, are all under sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. This is the situation we're in. As humanity, we have, we have to deal with the spiritual grime and grit of guilt. So the question is, how do we remove it. Well, we're in this series about 
the road to the cross, Jesus' journey, uh, the end of the Gospels. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there's four books in our New Testament that we call Gospels, and they're essentially biographies of Jesus. And in those four Gospels, about 40% of the content of those Gospels covers only one week out of Jesus' three years of ministry. You get like his birth story, and then you get the three years of ministry, but then almost 40% of the content of those four Gospels covers the final week of his life. So the road to the cross is a, is a highly important thing for us to look at. It's not an easy road. In fact, on the morning of Jesus' death, which is where we're going to study today, Jesus was surrounded by people with guilt cooked onto them who were each responding differently and dealing with it in different ways, similar to how we deal with it. And I'll just give you a heads up. This gets dark pretty fast, but just kind of go with me, and I'll show you where we're heading. So let's begin Matthew 27. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open it. And if you're not, then feel free to follow along on the screens. We're going to be jumping through this chapter, uh, covering the first 31 verses. And so if uh, you want to turn there, you've got plenty of time. If not, uh, follow along with us on the screen. But in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 27... This is where we pick up. It says, When daybreak came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, let me catch you up here. We'll just stop there and let me catch you up. Jesus had been conspired against by uh, the religious authorities, the Jewish authorities and leaders, right? He had been betrayed by his own disciple Judas for a meager 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was falsely arrested then. He was deserted by his other disciples. He was given a sham trial. He was physically abused, mocked, spat on by these religious leaders. And now in chapter 27, we see what's happening is that the religious leaders are now handing Jesus over to the political leaders, the Romans, for a very similar series of events. But then Matthew does something interesting. Instead of just taking us to the next series of events in Jesus' journey to the cross, he inserts Judas's story back in. And this is where it gets kind of dark, but I want you to read this with me in chapter 27, verses 3 through 10. He says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned was full of remorse, read guilt, and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So he threw the, the, the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver and, and said, it's not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it's blood money. And they conferred together and bought a potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. And therefore, that field has been called blood field to this day. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Isn't that just interesting that Jeremiah, 700 years or so before Jesus, maybe about 600 years before Jesus, uh, is prophesying in this kind of detail about the story of what Jesus would endure and his betrayer and then how the betrayer would respond. Isn't that so fascinating? Now, 
what do we see here in this story about Judas? Well, I just want to tell you a little bit about him. For three years, Judas had the appearance of allegiance to Jesus. He was the treasurer of the disciples. He was so interesting that he took 30 pieces of silver as a payment for uh, Jesus' head, essentially, because he was the one who carried all the money for the disciples anyway. We're not sure all the things that he did with it, but we know that while he appeared allegiant to Jesus, his betrayal revealed his true allegiance was to himself. And in, in this moment, as Jesus is you know, on his way to the cross, that Judas realized and recognized the grime of his guilt, but it was already too late. His first reaction is just try to make things even. But I'll give the money back. Like, if it can make up for what I've done, I'll, look, I'll give the money back, right? I, I've, maybe I can cleanse myself through my own effort. But you know this, and I know this, the right thing now doesn't make up for the wrong thing then. We need something else, right? Judas's guilt then turned into hatred toward himself because the weight of it was so much and he ended his own life. Now, that's Judas' story, and that's how he dealt with his guilt. But let me just take an aside here and, and maybe have a parenthesis in here because this is such an important topic. We still deal with the issue and problem of suicide in our culture even today. Now, this is not the sermon, but I just want to make this statement here. We don't know why Judas chose that ending, uh, but there's a clarification, right, that's worth making about this. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. It is a sin, right? But eternal condemnation isn't judged on the way you die. It's judged on what you do with Jesus while you're alive. So it's possible to have committed suicide and still have eternity with Jesus in heaven. That's a possibility. So because of forgiveness, right? It's judged, condemnation or justification is judged on what you do with Jesus while you're alive. Judas denied Jesus. He, he was never allegiant to Jesus. He appeared that way. But when the rubber met the road, he was revealed. He, he never was. He was only about himself. And he denied Jesus. And certainly at his death, he recognized that no amount of scrubbing, no amount of scraping, no amount of remorse or regret, even to the point of harming himself, was enough to remove his guilt. This is Judas. This is how he dealt with it. And in verse 11... We get introduced to another guy, the Roman governor, Pilate. Uh, Pilate, whose job was to determine on behalf of Rome whether or not Jesus was guilty. Well, uh, after interrogation, we read, read about this in verse 11 and following, Pilate, had, he wasn't, wasn't convinced at all that Jesus was guilty of anything, not breaking a Roman law or even Jewish laws. He's like, I don't understand why this guy is here. He kind of puts the pieces together later. Even his wife uh, urges him to have nothing to do with Jesus because Jesus was a righteous man, right? Just, hey, just take your hands off this guy, right? He's, there's something else going on here, right? So while Pilate had the power to do the right thing, what you read here is that he still chooses the easy way out and leaves Jesus's fate up to the Jewish people who, incited by the religious leaders, uh, shouted for Jesus to be crucified. 
This is this incredible mob mentality moment that happens on the road to the cross. And so they, they shout for Jesus to be crucified. Even still, Pilate still maintained the right and the power to do the right thing. But look at verse 24. Look at what happens here. Verse 24 in chapter 27 says, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Now, what do you think? Uh, do you think that just because Pilate said he was innocent, made him innocent? No, right? I mean, it's like the person who goes, hey, no offense, but, and then they go on to say something extremely offensive. Like, just because you say it doesn't make it right, okay? This is what Pilate's doing here. He was certainly guilty. But instead of taking responsibility for it, he left it in the sink, so to speak, for other people to deal with it or to deal with it later. And this is the reality we understand about Pilate is that ignoring guilt is not the same as removing guilt. The guilt remained. And then there's the Roman soldier. And I know we're just breezing through this chapter. We're going to kind of bring it all together here in a minute. But the Roman soldiers... Look, look at verse 27, if you got your Bible open or, or on the screen with me. Again, it's just a dark moment in history, but it says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence, gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the staff and kept hitting him on the head. And after they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, these men may not even have realized they were guilty of sin against God, much less have had a desire to remove it. They were just simply living the only way they knew how, right? And they are a perfect example of what happens with sin in our lives and how it can turn us into hating others. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and where sin is introduced in Genesis chapter 3, and then you read the very next story in Genesis chapter 4, do you know what it is? A brother murdering a brother. That's what happens with sin. If you let sin remain, if you do nothing about your guilt, what happens is it leads either to hatred of self like Judas or hatred of others. Like the soldiers, it's just the, war, the world that we live in. And th this is the story of our world. We see it everywhere we turn, right? I mean, you can look at something as drastic as the threat of nuclear war to something as hurtful as bullying in an elementary school. I mean, this is the story we live in, that sin turns into a hatred toward others. And humanity, including you and I, we have a huge guilt problem. 
a huge guilt problem. And here's why it's a problem. Because when we face God's judgment, if there's any trace of guilt from sin, we also must face the consequence for it. We must pay the price, right? And since any effort, as we've seen so well depicted here in Matthew 27, if any effort to remove guilt on our own is futile, all signs point to our ultimate conviction and condemnation of eternal death. An encouraging sermon, right? (laughs) We can relate to Judas. Right, knowing that we've made mistakes, some big, some small, uh, and thinking that, you know, right, if we do the right thing now, if we work to be a better person, that maybe if we try hard enough, we can make up for the wrong we've done, right? We've we've lived that story. We can relate in some ways to Pilate, uh, you know, delaying the inevitable. We treat uh, our sin debt like a student loan, that if we can just, like, kick it further down the road, uh, then eventually I'll be able to take care of it. Like when I get my life together or when I finally have more capacity or maybe when after I achieve my goals, then I'll start working on that. That's how we approach our sin debt and our guilt. Some of us can even relate to the soldiers. Like where you know the person God created you to be is still way underneath the surface, like it's deep down somewhere but you've spent so long accumulating guilt and just living in our world of sin that you may assume you're a lost cause. And you might relate with any of these three, but the most relatable person in Matthew 27 is someone we haven't really talked about yet. It's someone who is a convicted criminal who is hopelessly guilty, proven to be so, by the way. He was convicted and already condemned to death. His name was Barabbas. And on his execution day, he sat in his prison cell waiting to get what he deserved. But then something happened. Something happened to Barabbas which he most certainly did not deserve, right? Something happened to Barabbas, which he most certainly did not earn and certainly could take no credit for. He was released. The crowds shouted for him, for Pilate to give him freedom. What in the world? Well, in the same way we can relate to his guilt and his condemnation in facing judgment, we can also relate to his life and his freedom. So look at his story with me in chapter 27, verse 15. This is kind of a long section, but I just want you to see the arc of the story and take it in. So we'll just take it kind of slow and, and let you sort of process it as we go. Verse 15 says, as the fest, At the festival, uh, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And the reason he says that is because Christ isn't just Jesus' last name, right? It's like his title. He's the anointed one of God. He's the Messiah who God sent to save the world. And to the Jews, that was blasphemy. And so he says, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. 
for he knew it was because of envy they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judge's bench, as we said before, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds, <coughs> excuse me, to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? He's kind of delaying. The, he's trying to give them some time to make the right decision, right? But Barabbas, they answered. And Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all answered, crucify him. And then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Put yourself in Barabbas' shoes. Can you imagine what he felt that day. Can you imagine, like, trying to sleep the night before, knowing that the next day would be your last? Like, I don't know if they gave him a final meal. <laughs> Probably not, knowing how they treated prisoners in that day. But can you imagine, like, knowing you wouldn't ever take a bite again? Can you imagine, like, just listening to the crowds, and, and you hear maybe them chanting your name, and you go, oh, yeah, I've just done too much wrong you know, they're, they're, they're after me. The crowds are after me. And then someone opens your cell and says, Barabbas, let's go. And he stands up. Okay, my fate's here. And the man says, you can go free. What? What? Can you imagine? Put yourself in his shoes. Now, we don't know what Barabbas did with his freedom. We don't know what he ended up believing or not believing about Jesus. But the point of Matthew 27 is this. There is only one solution for the removal of spiritual guilt. And it is the substitute of innocence. Jesus' innocence is the thread which sews together every story of guilt in this chapter. Judas said he betrayed innocent blood. Pilate was more convinced about the religious leader's guilt than about anything Jesus was being accused of, right? Pilate's wife had the dream that Jesus wasn't just a good citizen, he was a righteous man, right? Avoid him. And Pilate couldn't bring himself to take responsibility for Jesus' sentence, and then Jesus quietly endures the abuse of the soldiers. Jesus' innocence is the thread that weaves together all this guilt in chapter 27. Even the name Barabbas is fascinating. The name Barabbas, it means son of the father. Now, names, in, before you kind of over-spiritualize it, names in the Roman world were a lot more practical than the names we give people today. Um, names, names have meaning. Names matter. But maybe just a little more crudely practical uh, in the Roman world. For example, uh, the man who scribed Paul's letter to the Romans in our New Testament at the end, it says his name was Tertius. You go, know, that's a cool Roman name, except it just means third. 
or like third born. How would you like to name your kids that? Like one, two, three, instead of the names you've given them, right? And so Barabbas, son of the father, uh, isn't necessarily this you know, beautiful spiritual uh, meaning. It, it actually would be kind of equivalent of you naming your son boy. You feel kind of like just the lack of dignity there which it may explain somewhat why it, he led into the life he lived, right? The notorious criminal, the hardened guy. I mean, this is, this is who Barabbas is. But isn't it amazing that the eternal son of the father, Jesus, who was dignified in every way, died in the place of the undignified son of the father, I mean, as the innocent man in Jesus is being carried away to the cross, the chains of the guilty are being removed. Jesus, sent by God, willingly substituted himself, the innocent for the guilty, right? The deserving for the undeserving, the dignified for the undignified. He took the curse of guilt and sin on himself. In fact, it's no accident why the soldiers who beat and abused Jesus put a crown of thorns on his head. Genesis chapter 3, I referred earlier to when sin entered the world for the first time, God told Adam and Eve what the result of that would be. And in the middle of this curse of sin is a picture, a symbol, is that the earth will produce thorns. And so now you see the story that God's been writing from the very beginning when he created us perfectly, but we were tainted not by his faulty design, but by our faulty choices, and that left us with the grime of guilt and the curse of thorns, which ultimately God would redeem as those soldiers that day twisted together a crown of thorns, and they not just placed it on Jesus' head, but they smashed it into his scalp. This All of this, the curse placed on Jesus, every sin of every person who's ever lived, including ours, levied onto one man, the innocent, for the guilty. This is why in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, it says this, So then, as through one trespass or sin or mistake, there's condemnation for everyone, talking about Adam. Adam's sin means that we all are sinners. And just as that, so also through one righteous act, Jesus' death is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he, meaning God, made the one who did not know sin, meaning Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus didn't have to be betrayed, but he endured betrayal so that we, the guilty, could be included. Jesus didn't have to stand under accusation from the religious leaders or from Pilate, but he endured it so that we, the guilty, would not be accused. Jesus was never so vulnerable that he could not stop the religious leaders, that he could not stop the crowd, that he could not stop the soldiers. He was always willing to endure their unjust condemnation so that we, the guilty, 
would not have to endure our own just condemnation. This is the beautiful news that God provides to a guilty humanity in the person of Jesus. And this is the distinctive of Christianity. And the takeaway today that we cannot do anything about our guilt. But instead we have the choice to trust what Jesus has done. Do versus done. Every other religion in the world emphasizes what you must do to absolve yourself. Christianity is so distinct and unique because it emphasizes what not we must do, but what only Jesus has done so that we can be clean again, restored, made new. So that old dirty pan that's grime and greasy and crusty and you just can never get it clean again, even if it looks clean, you know the damage that's been done, God says, I'll take it and let me replace it with a perfect, unblemished, always pure, totally nonstick, right? You cannot mess this one up. Jesus, his righteousness for your guilt. That is the great exchange. So we can't get back to our original cleanliness, but Jesus gives us his. And this is the good news. And you can receive this good news today by faith. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me and have a moment of prayer. And I wanna lead you to a point where you may want to receive this and maybe what you can tell God if that's your situation today. You might pray something like this, God, I recognize my guilt. I recognize that I I don't know what to do with it either. I've tried to be better. I've tried other things. I know I've hurt people along the way. God, I need Jesus to replace my guilt with his righteousness And I trust that when he died on the cross, he made that possible. He took my curse so that I can have his life. I want to give my life for that reality. But God, I don't want just your forgiveness and your cleanliness. I want God to be changed by this reality. I want to be a new person like you promise. This is a prayer that's obviously no magic words but as you pray and you just commit your heart and life to God he will restore you cleanse you he'll make you new again this is the promise second Corinthians 5 says therefore I'm a new creation the old is gone and the new has come